Hello and welcome to our Revenue Riser episode all about how to use your CRM data to close more sales. Now, companies invest heavily in CRM tools, but how much are they really leveraging the rich data potential that sits in these platforms? I'm your host, Anna Britnor-Guest, and I'm joined today by two CRM data specialists. Melanie Foster is the founder of Harness, which specializes in data optimization for the technology and maritime sectors. I first got to know Melanie a number of years ago when we collaborated on a sales enablement program, and I've always been impressed by her pragmatic but logical and structured approach, particularly when it comes to leveraging data to inform sales and marketing strategy and tactics. We've also walked a fair few miles together this year whilst debating and sparking ideas about sales and marketing transformation and effectiveness. Travis Davis is the founder of Point in Time, whose Salesforce plugin Strategy Mapper provides greater actionable insights for accounts and opportunities. I first met Travis a few years ago when I was looking for a better and more visual way to capture opportunity intelligence. Travis has a real handle on the complex consultative sales world. And like Melanie, he's also great fun to work with and full of down-to-earth advice. So I'm looking forward to our conversation. Optimizing CRM is a huge topic, and we'll delve into a few details as we go along. Melanie, let me start with a question for you. What do you see as the state of play in terms of how companies are using CRM today? I would say one of the challenges that I see is that CRMs have probably been installed in their organizations now for a good 10 to 15 years. Um, Any organizations that are lucky enough to have a, a slightly more newer version will still probably experience the same issues, which is who owns it? Is it an IT implementation? Is it fully adopted by the business? Do marketing and sales have the same objectives for the data that's being stored? Is the structure of it optimized to allow extracting the information that's needed in in the way that it's needed? And then, of course, we know that data degrades so quickly that is it being maintained in such a way that is actually useful when you extract it from the system? So, those are the main challenges that I see in most businesses at the moment. I think a lot of companies uh, have had their CRMs for a while, uh, especially from the Salesforce perspective, and the data in there is stale normally, and they really don't use it to optimize sales. They use it to track sales, right? They use it as a data repository for contacts. They use it to be able to, to create quotes. Then they have links to outside documentation that they store outside of the CRM that pertains to the sales effort. So I think there's a lot of uh, improvement organizations can do in just the effective use and really getting their return on investment in their CRM and not just a contact database. I think what you're talking about there, Travis, is it's using it for reporting versus yeah. using it for action. And, and if you're looking at it from a reporting point of view, you're looking back at what's happened. But what we're really talking about here is how do you use it to look forward? And I know, Travis, you talk a lot about actionable insights. So what, what does that really look like in practice? From our perspective, the folks that use our product is that just based on the interactions they're having with their customers, the data that they're gathering from pain points to customer initiatives to strengths, they cannot, they can see what's happening right now, but they can also predict some trending going on with their customers. It's also allows them to be very proactive when they do meet with new prospects and new customers. They have some idea probably what the conversation is going to be around, right? So my initial engagement is better because I have more insight into potentially what they want to do if we have not discovered it yet. 
Can you give us a couple of examples of what that's mm-hmm. what that's looking yes, like? Yes, for example, so if, if I know that based on historical data that a pain point of a company A that's in a uh, technology is this pain point, we're seeing that across all this type of sector for this type of customer, that I know that if I meet with the prospect, that pain point is the very potential and I can bring it up, right? I can show that I am the expert when it comes to helping them with their problem. Another benefit is using it in marketing, right? If I can see all these trending, then now I can now feed marketing and build that sales fund. And you and I, I know Travis, have talked many a time about in a long, complex sale that may track over many, many months or, or even into years. You know that that importance of being able to keep a handle on everything that's going on and the, the changing stakeholder landscape, the changing needs, and so on. And I think you know that definitely plays a part in in all of this, doesn't it? Being able to have good visibility of those things. Yeah, I mean, you have to have a. Let's say I, I'm a sales guy and I've been working an opportunity for six months. And all of a sudden, I get another offer and I, I leave the company. Well, where is that data residing that I just discovered in the last six months? Is it in my notebook? Is it in my head or is it in my CRM? Historically, it's not in CRM because they only have a note section. And that notes basically uh, demos went well, scheduled another meeting, went to lunch, right? There's no strategic data that you can gather from there to build strategy around. And then if I have to take that account over as a new rep, I have nothing there. So I'm starting again and asking in the same questions that have already been asked, which the customer doesn't want to answer again. So it's a whole continuity of business. I think that presupposes that it was set up in a user-friendly way in the first place. I mean, you don't want too many free format fields in a database you know, because that is going to limit the, the amount of uh, reporting that you can do on a free format field. But and nevertheless, it's in those free format fields that you're going to store all that really valuable qualitative information. It goes back to the point of, you know, was the system installed in a user-friendly way right up front to be able to then extract it further down the line? We rely heavily on structured data because if you give sales guys or teams or whoever a lot of work to do, they're not going to do any of it. So it's bare minimum what you need to, to accomplish, but you got to look at who are the consumers of the data, right? You have many consumers of data along the CRM. I have the individual account rep. I consume data differently than my manager consumes it, right? And then I have my VPs consume data different than manager. Then I have executives in marketing and other teams that consume that, consume that data differently and need to gather other insights from it. But everybody needs that type of data. And where does it reside? Has to be a source of truth somewhere of sales data. And that has to be in the CRM and not in a spreadsheet, not in a PowerPoint, and not uh, all these distributed uh, different technologies. And I think there's often a a view among salespeople that they're not really the consumers of this data in, in the CRM. They're expected to put stuff in there, but other people are going to consume it. And, you know, it comes back to how is it set up? Why is it set up? What's in it for me as a sales guy to use it? If I'm a sales guy and I don't see any real benefit other than this is going to take me time putting stuff in there so that my manager can hold me accountable for whether or not I close the deals I've committed to this month, then that's not a great incentive for a salesperson. So it comes back to why as a salesperson should I use it? And if I'm going to consume the data in there, then how is it going to help me close more sales at the end of the day? I shouldn't have to rely on marketing to fill my sales funnel. As an as a account executive, I should be able to help fill my sales funnel because I'm meeting with people, right? I'm getting their insights. I understand what's going on. I want to have a better first interaction because I only get one time to make an impression. 
And if I come along as a, not as a sales guy, but as a confidant, right, that understands their business and their pain points and whatever they want to do, then the likelihood of me having a second meeting is greatly increased. I think this ties in with what we're seeing as the changing, the changing face of the salesperson as well in enterprise and complex B2B selling, particularly in things like the tech sector, where relationship building is still important, but it's not the only thing. Sales are becoming increasingly data-driven, I think, now. And the sales guys that can capitalize on that and see that and use that to find a way of repeating and scaling their sales um, are the ones that are going to close more business, particularly in these more uncertain times that we're, we're in. But I guess it comes back, Melody, to your point about how the whole thing is set up in the first place so that it, it gives you the right analytics and the right information that you can then act on, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, if you've got the luxury of having a new in-store and you're going to have a new database, that's great. And, you know, that's a whole topic we could cover on a different podcast. But I think, you know, nowadays, as Travis has alluded to, there are lots of plugins that can help to optimise a database that maybe has run its course in terms of how it was set up 10 or 15 years ago that needs now some optimization, some, you know, aggregation of data, some re-looking at, you know, who are the owners of the various parts of the data. So there are various ways that you can address a cumbersome database, CRM database, that now needs you know, some refreshing for the 21st century. But as Anna, you just said, you know, in these times, it's quite hard to quantify or, or justify that kind of investment. It just depends how much you, you value the kind of customer interaction that Travis has been talking about above a purely financial transaction of investing in your database. And does that, does that link in then to maturity and the maturity of CRM and its use in a, in a company? Because where you are in that maturity journey will, to a large extent, determine the, the return on investment and the, the outputs that you, you get from it, doesn't it? Yeah, I think maturity of a CRM can be quite a broad topic in itself. But certainly some of the, uh, the peripheral areas to be considered would be, you know, who, who owns it? Is it adopted at all levels of an organization? So Travis was talking about, you know, what's in it for the sales guy to be able to pull out the information. At what level is information being extracted? Because if it's being extracted at maybe a mid-level management, it can become a stick, not a carrot. If we're pulling lots of reports that are going up and being reviewed at, at a, yeah, a sort of mid-management level, that's that definitely becomes a stick and not a carrot. So I think the adoption of where it sits and who are the sponsors of the CRM is a place to start when you're looking at CRM maturity. You don't want to stick all the time, right? The carrots sometimes are elusive. So I think that's important when you do implement any type of change, whether applications or whatever, you've got to get the team involved to help them define the solution, right? So if I go to a sales team or I go and I say, okay, you got to do this. It was like, well, where'd your input? Well, the input was me and the management. That's all the input. Or you can go, let's ask these A players, right? Ask the team, what do you need? What would you like to see in that solution? What kind of information do you want to be able to gather? And when you allow that input, and then when you do deploy it, and you deploy it in a very phased approach from a crawl, walk, run perspective, then the adoption is a lot better. And they're starting to see the value where let's say that typically it's taken me six meetings to close a deal. And then I've figured out what I'm saying in the sixth meeting and move that to the fifth meeting. 
right? I, I accelerate my sales process. You can't necessarily accelerate the buyer buying, but you can accelerate the sales process so you're ready when they do pull the trigger. So if I've learned that and I figured that out, that's great because now my competition, they're still trying to get that sixth meeting, but I've already closed a deal in the fifth meeting. So I'm just waiting on the PO, right? So you got to be, you got to give them a head. You've got to be interacting with them. It is, it's a relationship. We look at sales like it's an account is a relationship. I can't sell to you until we know each other. An opportunity is strictly a revenue generating exercise. That's where I'm going to draw the money. And I can gain on those, those relationships. I can drive more opportunities, which in turn drives more revenue. And then they can be my advocate to help me get in other accounts. Some good points in there around how we get those sales guys to, to use that and how we look at the funnel. Because once you have some fairly reliable data in there, you can start to then make sense of how things move through your sales funnel. And to your point, Travis, about how do you accelerate that sales cycle, if you have some very clear understanding of what each stage in your funnel looks like and in your forecast looks like, and what the criteria are to move from one to the next. And and I'm a bit obsessive about this needs to be where your customer is in their buying journey and what they've done. Then you can start to analyze it and you can start to look at how long, how long do opportunities on average stay in each stage before they move on. And, you know, for those that then go on to close, is there a difference in how long they, they dwell in each stage versus those that just linger and fester forever in a day and you know once you can start to look at that then you have a much more objective view of what's happening at each stage are we really at that stage in terms of the customer buying journey to your point what can we do to accelerate that or to make sure we're on the front foot competitively and also when do we know when to quit and close something out and say this is sat here for 100 days and we know that on average things sit here for 30 days so we know there's a problem with this opportunity and we need to go back, re-qualify it, re-ask the questions, re-look at our stakeholder maps, where our support is, what the relationships are, what the need really is, and, and make some clear judgments of what our next step should be. Reassess it, redefine it, move it forward or, or move it out. And I think that Melody points is, I guess, the quality of the data is important in your database. If you have bad quality and just a bunch of stuff in your database, it's really hard to drive any type of report or analytics. I mean, it's just almost impossible because there's so much data you got to go through to weed out the, the crap. And I think I'd add to that, and this goes back to Anna's point about serial maturity. I think I'd add to it, though, as well. You have to be also very cautious about generating poor behavior because people will will respond to how they're targeted. To Anna's point of setting up the various milestones, that's great. And it's definitely a way to, to manage process. But if you start to drill down on those milestones too much, you can end up in a situation where you're driving poor behavior. So it's very much a case of then wanting to reward the good behavior, not only on the data cleanliness, but in terms of that things are put in at the right stage, that, the, that it reflects the, the real situation and not a status that's been generated purely to tick a box that says, I have X amount of pipeline at this stage and why a pipeline at that stage is actually got to reflect what's the reality. Otherwise, no one is served well. It becomes an admin exercise. Yeah, we've all seen sandbagging, yeah. right? We've all seen these opportunities that are just either they're, they're way too early. It's not even an opportunity. It's an initiative, right? If I look at an opportunity, I look at my forecast. I go, well, that's a great forecast, but I start really diving into it. I'm going, mm, 
you haven't even got the basic gist of information that we need to even say this is an opportunity. Because I have to have 10 new opportunities this month. I'm going to fill it up somehow. Exactly. If that if that's your target is to generate 10 opportunities every month, you're going to exactly you're going to fill it up. And that's what we're going to see in the reporting, in the analytics. Um, but that's not helping anyone in the business at all to determine exactly. what's going to close by the end of the quarter or the end of the month. Yeah. That that ties back into a lot of forecasts are based on a sales activity. Have we done a demo? Have we done a quote? Have we had a meeting? And those actually say nothing about where the customer is in their buying journey. So I think, Melanie, you make a really good point about not driving poor behaviors or I'm at this stage, so therefore I need to do ABC. But actually, you know, where's the customer in their journey and measuring the milestones of where the customer is? Has the customer got exec sponsorship internally? Has the customer got a budget? Has the customer got resources and an evaluation process defined? Have they got their criteria for a decision? And so, you know, once you start to look at it from a customer activity and output perspective, then that should then drive the question of what's the right thing to do for us as a sales organization at this stage to help the customer to get to that next step. I, I had a, a boss that I worked for and he says, there's no way you can sell to somebody unless you know how they buy. And we've all seen it where if you're running in an engagement that has a sales engineer and an account executive, you sometimes you can outrun the customer's buying, right? I think I'm at you know, they're going to make a decision where they're still looking at vendors. And we all know these days that if I bring it, if I'm brought into an opportunity, I'm already in the top three vendors. They have already done, they're doing it from a, like a B to C before they even start talking to you. They're looking, they're going to your website. They're looking at all this information about you. And then they're bringing it because they want to, they're trying to alleviate or cut down how many times they're talking to somebody, not cloud it up. So you're up, we are always in the top three. I mean, I, I can almost 99% of the time tell you when somebody says, hey, let's have a meeting, we're top three. So just thinking a bit about the audience for this podcast who are perhaps listening as sales leaders, I'm assuming will be at different stages in their maturity and how they use their CRM systems internally. So I'll open this up to either of you to comment, but I know, Melanie, you've talked a bit about maturity and some of the complexity around maturity. So do you want to just pick up on that point? A little? I might dive ahead and say that I think I think what we're all trying to say in one way or another is keep it simple. Keep it as simple as possible in terms of, of expectations of the use of the system and the data that's in it. That said, it's the foundational piece. It's the, it's the setup. And then once you're way beyond the setup, it's then the reviewing and the looking at the maturity, as you've said, that will determine the success of, of a CRM implementation. Uh, we, we, I touched earlier on organizational adoption. And we, Travis has talked quite a lot about the kind of analytics you're going to pull out. And in the middle, you've got a whole piece around uh, what are the real key data fields that you want to keep. I mean, say, for example, if you're not interested in the size of the business that you're trying to sell to, if, you, if you're happy to sell to all sizes of business, but you only want to stick with one vertical, then clearly it's highly critical that the industry field or the SIP codes are completed in your database are more important than, than worrying about whether the number of employees is consistently filled out. So, so keep it simple means defining exactly what you need to extract from the data and then putting in place good processes to make sure that those are the fields that are filled out, mandated. And that fields that are not so critical and not mandated because that just takes everybody's time and will probably people will fill in the first box that 
drops down on a tick list rather than actually scrolling through all of the various options? I would say from uh, from our perspective is whatever solutions somebody goes with and the data that they want to put in their CRMs, if they're a small business right now and they are looking at growing to mid to enterprise, you should never have to get another solution based on the size that you're going to be, right? So if I buy a solution today, it I should never have to replace it two, three years down the road as I grow. It should grow with me. It should be able to adapt to my, to my change of strategy, to my different type of customers, to my products, right? I shouldn't have to redo this all the time because the consumers are the same. It's just the, the amount of data coming in when you get bigger. Yeah, I think to that point, it, it's important, isn't it, to understand what your sales process looks like. You know, if you are very marketing led, mm-hmm. then the way in which you set this up is going to be very different to if you are very target account based, for instance. Data that you're gathering in your interactions with your customers drive marketing activities. That's the critical. That's that knowledge driven marketing is that sales and marketing working seamlessly in the background. And then that's me driving my own funnel and me nurturing my own leads and my own customers, my own contacts. I shouldn't have to reinvent the wheel every time I want to go and see a customer. I shouldn't have five days selling class on strategic selling. And then all of a sudden I get my CRM and it's nothing in there to help me leverage what I just learned to operationalize what I just learned. So given I think we've talked about that, you know, that maturity, you know, we've talked about the technology that companies have a CRM platform and most have something and it's probably fairly well in use, but whether it's effectively in use is, is a question. But we also talked a bit about the processes that sit around that. You know, Melanie, you've talked about be clear about the data you want to capture and, and why you want to capture it and, and keeping that that simple. And we've talked a bit about the people and you know at all levels we focused a bit on the sales guys because at the end of the day, sales are the ones who are predominantly inputting a lot of this data through the through the sales cycle. But I think, you know, from a maturity point of view, those things have to be in sync, don't they? You can't have maturity in how you use the data if those three areas are at odds with each other or not not aligned. What are the sorts of things that you would you would suggest any sales leader thinks about wherever they are on that maturity journey in order to improve how they use the data um, and how they use that to ultimately close more sales more effectively. Melanie, do you want to pick that one up first? I'd probably, as a first point, go back to Travis's point about defining the buyer, the buying journey, and then trying to align everything data-wise around the buying journey. I would add to that before I hand over to Travis that I think you know really being clear in that buying journey about how you define each stage and what the what the exit criteria are as you move from one stage to the next so that you're very clear on on that too. The buyer journey is important because of you've got you've got customers sometimes that just refuse to give you stakeholder information, right? There's a person they're they're the one they're talking to you and they got all the information. Well if if you didn't go in and say okay what is your buying journey? How do you buy? Okay, we do this, this, and this. Okay, who at each stage of this journey is responsible for that? And when you tell me who that is, I'm going to let you know on our side who's responsible. And then what you're doing is you're actually identifying stakeholders for each each process in that buying journey, and you're building a relationship because, oh, now we knew how to work with on your end. You start gaining this data by not asking for it. So I think the buying journey is important and understanding what your customer, what is their end goal? And how do you map and make them successful? 
Great stuff. Well, thank you both for uh, sharing your thoughts. I know it's a huge topic and we've just tried to drill down onto a few a few points. I think there could be a few more episodes in here that we might want to come and drill down on a few more of those topics over time. Melanie, where can people reach you if they want to? Find me online on my LinkedIn profile or the website is www.harness-uk.com. And Travis? Point, P-O-I-N-T, letter N, time, T-I-M-E, pointintime.com. And LinkedIn or uh, Travis D at pointintime.com. Great. Thank you, Travis and Melanie. And thank you too for tuning in. We really hope you enjoy it. And if you did, please sign up for our email newsletter at revenueriser.com. We'll be sharing advance notice of new episodes, supporting content, and opportunities to get involved. And of course, check out our episode library and subscribe. Thank you and see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>